A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with uh, Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode, which is part one on the Jewish history of Toronto, has been generously sponsored by Shlomo and Rezel Chana Hofstadter, Lekavid, their son Menachem's Bar Mitzvah. And uh, when preparing for Toronto, which was uh, a whole endeavor, it's going to be a three-part uh, series. Um, so there's a lot of people who will help provide with information. Residents of Toronto, former residents of Toronto, people who just happen to know the history of Toronto. So there's numerous, many of them, so I just want to thank uh, everyone out there who uh, helped me with uh, information and anecdotes, and I hope you forgive me for not going through the list uh, by name. Um, like I said, it's going to be three parts. There's so much to say about this uh, city and its Jewish history. So if you feel that there's something you want to add and as an anecdote or a sponsorship, then you can do so uh, for one of the later parts. Uh, just start with an overview um, in general, in, in history today, in the history world today, there's a trend towards social history, towards uh, you know examining the everyday lives of the everyday people, and, and economically, and culturally, and religiously. Um, here, as we do in many episodes, we're going to buck that trend and focus on the rabbinical leadership, and in the case of Toronto, actually, many of uh, uh, great philanthropists, uh, unusually uh, large uh, number of them, specifically in the story of Toronto. So sorry that we're going to focus on that instead of the uh, more the social history. But um, it's a good story. There's, I was, I was amazed uh, over the course of my research for this about how many um, um, great uh, rabbinical personalities uh, to this one city has seen and also the amount of uh, lay leaders and philanthropists who were great builders in the Jewish world as well. Um, so the you know, there were early early Jewish settlement in, in Canada and Toronto, and then it was, early years it wasn't even Toronto, it was called York, but eventually it came to be called Toronto sometime in the 19th century, and there was uh, early Jewish immigration, like in most places, and like in most places that we've been talking about, the larger Jewish community only develops in the late 1800s with the immigration of Eastern European Jews 
uh, um, in the 1880s. And they, originally they sell in a neighborhood, settle, excuse me, in a neighborhood uh, called The Ward, known as The Ward, which is an immigrant neighborhood in general. At different times, um, excuse me, over the years it was, it was home to uh, all kinds of different immigrants. It was always the first place for immigrants over the centuries. It was in the, in the early 1800s. It was, it was a stop on the Underground Railroad of runaway uh, of former slaves uh, from the South who made it out of the United States, and they would make it to Canada, so they very often would settle in the ward. And later, the, the people who were running away from the Irish potato famine in the mid-1800s, so a lot of Irish uh, immigrants settled there, and later Italians, and later on it was it was a Chinatown. So at one point in its history, in the early 1900s, it was Eastern European Jews who were the immigrants there. So it was a bit of a, a slum area because it was always uh, more uh, uh, immigrants who were in the lower rungs of the socioeconomic ladder. Uh, there were some anti-Semitic uh, riots there, and uh, soon the Jewish neighborhood shifted to Kensington Market. So Kensington Market becomes the center of the Jewish neighborhood as well as the Italian neighborhood in the 1920s and 30s. And it was very similar in many ways to the dense Jewish neighborhoods of New York City, such as the Lower East Side. Uh, in many ways, in fact, uh, again, over the course of, of my looking into Toronto, it reminded me of like a, in many ways, a miniature uh, version of New York, like the Canadian version of New York, uh, as far as the Jewish immigration and the development of the city, in many ways. It was unique also, but uh, it, it, it was the, there were some interesting parallels there on, on a miniature scale. Um, so Kensington Market was sometimes known as the Jewish Market. It had stalls and push carts and Yiddish signs, um, and it became known as the Jewish Market. Uh, Jewish merchants operated small shops, like Tailors and furriers and bakers. There was around sixty thousand Jews living in around the Kensington Market neighborhood in the nineteen twenties and thirties, and there was over thirty shuls. Uh, from the beginning, the market uh, sold uh, items which they had imported from their ho- former countries. So they had connections to their former countries, and and they would very often sell products uh, produced there, and they were the importers. Um, traditionally, Toronto was more. Polish, Polish Jews, less less Hungarian until after the war, the Second World War. Uh, so the, but it was it was from all over Eastern Europe, Eastern European Jewish immigration, but every type to Toronto. Like I said, the Hungarians only arrived after World War Two, but but uh, prior to World War Two was Polish, and Lithuanian, and Russian, and Romanian, many Shtiblach, some associated with different Hasidic groups. Uh, I noticed there was even a Hosiatner Stiebel, which was one of the smaller uh, Hasidic groups represented in the United States at the time, so they had a Stiebel like that in Toronto, and many other uh, ones that were generally Hasidic or, or officially affiliated with some dynasty back in Eastern Europe. And many were officiated with a Landsmannschaft, from which was an area or city in Europe, similar to uh, the New York neighborhoods, the Brooklyn neighborhoods at the time. And there are literally dozens of them dotting the Jewish landscape of Toronto during the early decades of the 20th century. And it had the unique distinction that it was known by some observers and historians as one of the best organized Jewish communities in the world, which is an amazing distinction because in the urban world, um, of the 20th century, there, disorganization was much more of a distinctive feature of Jewish life than organization. So to have that uh, distinction um, as, as organized is pretty impressive. 
Uh, it was also very famous for many of its great Jewish philanthropists, which I'm going to get to hopefully later on, because most of them are the story of post-war Toronto Jewish life, so we'll hopefully get to it in part two or part three, um, uh, such as the Reichman family, uh, Joe Tannenbaum, the Hofstadter family, the Bleeman family, the Dan families, and many, many more. Um, and we'll hopefully get to the story of some of those when we get to the post-war. And essentially, the, one of the reasons that it's such an amazing story, so these philanthropists, is that many of them were, like I'm describing about the immigrants who arrived, and the immigrants c- could come during the early decades of the 20th century or their post-war immigrants, but they came here with just shirts on their back, and they they built themselves up from rags to riches, and then they go ahead and build up Judaism and, and Jewish life locally in Toronto, the local institutions, and then across the world. There are people who were self-made men and uh, and and women, and um, and really developed it. So again, going back into the macro, in 1871, the Toronto Jewish community was negligible. It was less than a couple of hundred Jews. It was really, really minimal Jewish presence there. And then by uh, the turn of the century, there's over 3,000. So that's influenced by the immigration. But again, 3,000 is not very large. So the community does grow in the wake of the immigration uh, in the early years of the 20th century. And by 1911, again, by the turn of the, the, turn of the century, the, the, just to look at the demographics so we get a bit of an idea of the numbers, in, 19, in the turn of the century, there's 3,000. In 1911, which is only a, te- a decade later, it had grown to 18,000. So literally, you know, I don't know math well, but I think it like uh, multi- multiplied fivefold. Uh, and then it doubles again uh, in the next decade, in 1921. And then by 1931, which is another, advancing uh, 10 years at a time, there's close to 50,000 Jews living in Toronto. So it's a huge uh, increase very quickly, mostly Polish Jewish immigrants. And especially, and we're talking about 1931, what had happened in the interim was that after 1924, when the United States its southern neighbor had imposed immigration restrictions. So all of a sudden, Canada in general, and Toronto specifically, starts uh, attracting a growing number of Jewish immigrants, whoever was able to get in. So in the, eventually the Canadian government also restricts immigration. So the, the, the um, very also small, only small uh, numbers of Jews were able to get in, and, and uh, Austrian and German Jews fleeing Hitler, uh, very few of them were able to be able to make it to, to a place like Toronto. Um, and like I said, it stays at about uh, 50,000 Jews by the time the war breaks out, and it is then the largest ethnic minority in Toronto. So they had a very strong presence. So if we move from this general picture to try to examine through the lens of the different rabbinical leadership and very prestigious rabbinical leadership that Toronto was privileged to have, We'll get an idea of the uh, challenges and successes of uh, Jewish life as it developed, especially Orthodox Jewish life, as it developed in uh, the first the pre-war and then the post-war. So the first chief rabbi of Toronto, or if we can give that title, um, was a fellow by the name of Rabbi Yosef Weinrib. And he was a Galicia Jew, Galicianer, and he arrives at the turn of the century. He's one of the first Polish rabbis to, to do so, to immigrate to, to Canada, uh, even to the United States, it wasn't that common at the turn of the century to immigrate for a rabbi. And he was the rabbi there for over 40 years until his passing in 1942. And he's later succeeded by another legendary Toronto rabbi, Rabbi Gedalia Felder, who we'll hopefully get to. Um, and he's, and, and this Rabbi Yosef Weinreb was the rabbi at the 
initially at the Shemri Shabbos Chaver Mishnayas Shul, and uh, and. Uh, and the and he uh, and he his influence spread to many of the other smaller shuls uh, in in the vicinity. Anyone who was associated with Galicia, especially, it was very much divided. Each rabbinical territory was divided, uh, basically, by an affiliation of a Landsmannschaft affiliation of where you came from in Europe. So he was a Galicianer, and uh, even though ostensibly he was, in, you know, a rabbi initially, at least in the early years of all of uh, the Jewish uh, community in Toronto, but it, we'll see soon how it wasn't so simple. So. Like many, many other rabbis, both in Toronto and throughout the United States, one of the challenges that they faced was the kashras situation with the butchers and the unions and the sheikhtim. He tries to found a varha kashras. There was a distributable uh, sheikhet by the name of a fellow by the name of Marcus Dickman, who um, who tried suing uh, um, Rabbi Weinrib and the Vat Hakashras that he was affiliated with because he they they said his his shrit is no good and he wasn't he, he tried opposing them and when they tried when the rabbinical leadership tried to bring order to the messy Kashras situation it lay, led to confrontation with both the Shaykhtim and the butchers and the unions and everyone else. Um, but it, then it got worse. There was there was other rabbis there who who uh, they tried working. Some of them tried working together, and some of them didn't work so well together. There was another rabbi who we'll get to, Rabbi Yaakov Gordon, who was the Litv- Litvak, the Litvisher rabbi in the community. Um, who we'll get to soon, and and he was working in this Vadakashras together with um, Rabbi Yosef Weinrim. And then there's the arrival of Rabbi Yudel Rosenberg in town. He's famous as the is the one who who made up the uh, he didn't make it up but he popularized the legend of the Gaelum of Prague. Um, that's how he's famous. But he was also famous as a rabbi, and uh, later on as a, a a rabbi in Montreal. Uh, but first, he was a rabbi for several years in in Toronto, and he arrives in 1913, and that kind of complicates things because he was Polish. And he wanted that the Polish and the Polish Jews in town, who were increasing in their percentage of the Jewish community, they wanted independence from the leadership, which was Galicianer and Litvish. So we have, excuse me, Galicianer, Litvish, and Polish, and everyone's trying to work things out here. So the Polish Jews united behind Rebutel Rosenberg. And uh, and 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 Revesif Weinrib and Rabbi Gordon and others, they tried to make a united kahila, an official Jewish community of of uh, of the entire Toronto, and they were clashed with this Rabbi Rosenberg. So Rabbi Rosenberg was a rabbi of the Polish Shul, which was called Beth Jacob, and he was in Toronto until 1919, six years, when he moved to Montreal, became a rabbi there. So everyone discredited each other's hashgacha and, and rabbinical certification for the shechita, and if you eat from that shechita, it's no good. And uh, the shechita became the point of contention between, as a method of, 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 of rabbinical control on, uh, on, on Jewish life and tried to regulate it and bring the kashras. Um, and any, anyone who, you know, it became a thing in the Jewish press at the time, and it was a big, uh, long-standing controversy. Um, um, which which uh, took quite a bit of time to resolve and actually continued on with the next rabbinical leaders. But getting back to Rabbi Yosef Weinreb, uh, Rameir Shapiro, on his fundraising visit to uh, um, uh, uh, Toronto in 1927, he stayed by the Weinrebs, he was also Galiziana Rav, so he you know, felt comfortable there. Um, and he had a daughter, 
uh, Rabbi Yezav Weiner had a daughter who married a Litvak, a student of the Slabotki Yeshiva named Rabbi Menachem Per. Um, and he, uh, he, his son is Rabbi Chil Per, the Yeshiva of, of Yeshiva Farakaway. Uh, so, so um, the, uh, the 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 was the. The, the main issue that um, that Rabbi Weinrib and Rabbi Gordon uh, worked together with, uh, and the Sheikhtim who were not happy about this, they, they uh, one of the Sheikhtim who got fired once tried destroying Rabbi Weinrib's house. Uh, so so they, 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 they were able to, to, to prevent that from happening, but Rabbi Gordon wasn't so lucky, and his house actually got destroyed by a distraught Sheikhet. So things continue. When the next rabbi arrives in town, the next Polish rabbi, who was a very, very prominent and one of the most influential rabbis in Toronto's history, Rabbi Yehuda Leib Graubert. Uh, Rabbi Yehuda Graubert was a, a Polish rav in many towns, in Stashov, that was his most famous uh, position, but he was in several other towns as well. He was very active during World War One. He was first uh, arrested by the Tsarist uh, government and sent to Siberia, but he got out and he came to Moscow. He, in fact... He was one of the few rabbis who wrote a memoir and published it on his own. And uh, we have an amazing memoir, amazing stories there that he himself is relating in, in first hand and right after they happened. It's a very, very good uh, uh, window into Jewish life in, in Poland and Russia during World War I. He was a Zionist, one of the leaders of the Mizrahi in Poland after World War I. And um, and he was very active after the Russian Revolution in assisting refugees in Moscow Um and uh, like I said, in his memoir, it's called Sefer Zikarain, which is a very apt title for a memoir, a uh, book of memory, a very rare and valuable work of a rabbi. So in the mid-1920s, he moves to Toronto, and he, again, is the Polish rabbi who's opposed to Rabbi Weinreb, who's the Galiziana, Rabbi Gordon the Litvak. So he he's known as the Polish Rav Hakoilel, the chief rabbi. Um, and he's very, again, active in Kashrus. He's active in the Eitz Chaim Yeshiva network, which he develops and he builds up, which also I'm going to get to in other communal endeavors. He's very active in promoting Shabbos observance, actually. One of his biggest battles was Shabbos observance. And he was, he would actually go out into Kensington Market and deliver outdoor sermons on Shabbos. And he would do all kinds of programs to try to prevent Chil Shabbos and des- Shabbos desecration among the shopkeepers in Kensington Market. That was one of his biggest campaigns, which he saw limited success in. He was very involved in the Eitz Chaim, which had been founded just a couple of years before he arrived in 1918. He was also um, combating uh, reform Judaism in, in Canada. He was a visionary who saw the need to train rabbis in the United States for the new generation in Canada. So he supported the yeshivas in New York and Chicago because he saw that as the future for rabbinics in the new world. He wrote many sfarim. He was a phenomenal Talmud Chacham. So it's it's really an amazing story what uh, what the, the, this uh, all these great rabbis uh, you know you know trying to get things done as far as Judaism is concerned in Toronto at that time and they tried to form a kahila. So Rabbi Graubert has he's officially called as far as the Polish Jews are concerned he's called the Rav Hakoyel the chief rabbi and his community is called Adas Yisrael. And then Rabbi Gordon and Rabbi Weinrib, they have they form what they call the Kehila, the community, the official community. So who's the real community? And it mainly revolved around the question of kashra supervision and shechita. It was around to the courts in the mid-1920s, the non-Jewish courts, which had to decide 
So it's two non-Jewish lawyers representing the two rabbinical sides, the two hashgachas, the two kashra supervisions, and the non-Jewish judge who's going to arbitrate. And, and really what they were, the, the non-Jewish judge is, is trying to decide is what constitutes a Jewish kehila and what falls under its jurisdiction. It's kind of a bizarre situation. Um, and what the judge decided was something even more incredible. The judge decided that a Besden should be brought in from New York of Orthodox rabbis, and they should arbitrate and decide what the official Jewish kehila of Toronto should be. So Rabbi Yisrael Rosenberg, Rabbi Yisif Konvitz, and a Rabbi Pfeffer are brought in from New York, uh, the New York area, or convicts in Newark, um, and, and they decide to create a united kehila with all the rabbis, with a rotating who's in charge, Rabbi Graubert, Rabbi Yosef Weinrib, and Rabbi Jacob Gordon. Amazing story, very interesting about how this outside arbitration decides in the this rotating rabbinate of the entire kehila of Toronto. And it kind of sort of worked. There was a lot of tension. It worked till the end of the 1920s, but eventually it lost its influence. Um, but what it did come out from it is that the surplus finances that they got through the Kashra supervision went to the Kahila uh, towards educational and social institutional support, which actually helped build up a lot of the educational and social uh, institutions in pre-war Toronto. So this whole saga, the Kashras and the rabbis and the congregations from different parts of Europe, uh, the attempts at control, the establishing a Kahila, these are all good examples of how difficult it was to establish a real Kahila on the European model in a place like North America for the following two reasons. Number one, the lack of government recognition, which would grant it legal status and autonomy, the right to regulate taxes. Uh, so that's an important fact. That's one of the reasons it didn't work here. And the second reason, which is you know obvious from what comes out from the story, is the urban setting. There's a large and diverse population who come from different areas of Europe, each with its own customs, each with its own cultures, its own values, each with its own rabbis. And what augmented the latter issue was the fact that the flow of immigrants is constant, and there's always new immigrants continually coming, which impacted the um, demographic and the cultural makeup of the community, as well as new rabbis who are immigrants who are arriving, and there are new players on the scene who get hired to become the rabbi of their part of the community. And this creates challenges about working together and regulating uh, such contentious areas such as Kashrus. But one other thing that Rabbi Graubert accomplished, among his many accomplishments in education, and rabbinics, and Kashrus, and Shabbos, I mentioned, but another one uh, was he, he built the Toronto Erev in 1921. And allegedly, so it says in the sources, this was the first Erev in North America that was not disputed. That's an amazing accomplishment uh, that he was able to do. On his passing in the mid-1930s, he was succeeded by, again, he was the rabbi of the Polish community, so ironically, he's succeeded by none other than Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, who was the most not Polish you could get. He was a big Litvak, but he's the one who's appointed. Uh, Rabbi Yaakovinesky had arrived in the United States and he got a temporary position in Seattle. Um, and uh, the one who he had taken over in Seattle temporarily was Rabbi Wargalanter, who I discussed in the episode about Rabbi Yaakovinesky. So he assisted him in getting this Toronto position. He had a brother who was a rabbi in Toronto also. Um, so Rabbi Grabert had just had passed away, and Rabbi Yaakov Konetsky was going to fill his position. The head of the community, of the Polish community, was a fellow by the name of Rabitza Meyer Karelnik, and he, uh, together with the board, they agreed to hire, to hire him. Um, so a funny story is that uh, they had him try on Rabbi Graubert's top hat, a cylinder, it's called, 
his top pad, and he said if if it fits, uh, then he got the job. Kind of like an inverse uh, O.J. Simpson uh, trial story. If if it fits, then then he's it. He can be the rabbi. Uh, so, uh, which by, by, by O.J. was if it, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. So um, here, Rabbi Yaakov got the job. I, I don't know if I don't know if Rabbi Yaakov would have hired Jackie Childs to be his his lawyer. That might be uh, outrageous. But um, but either way, he he gets the position because the top hat fit. Now, Rabbi Yaakov forged a close connection with uh, members of the community during the years he was there. He was there for several years, all, close to a decade. They were impressed with both his Torah and general knowledge. He would express his deep sense of gratitude for the rest of his life for, for the community in Toronto, the Torah's MS Kehila, for saving his family's life. Why? Because Rabbi Shemir Karolnik said a rabbi needs his wife and children with him, and Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky's family was still back in Lithuania. He couldn't afford to bring them over. So what, what Mr. Karolnik arranges at great expense to the community. They funded the travel arrangements for the entire Kamenetsky family back in Lithuania, and also take care of the visas and the legal documentation, the paperwork along the way. And this was ultimately a lifesaver, obviously, for the Kamenetsky family, because it was unlikely that Rebecca Kamenetsky would have been able to undertake the expense on his own, and, and he was because of this, they were able to get out of Europe in time. A very interesting shidduch uh, between him and the terrorist Emes uh, community, which was Polish, not only were they very simple and, and, and somewhat uh, unlearned, but they were a Polish Hasidic background, and he was a Litvak uh, rabbinic aristocrat from Slabatka, but it worked out for several years, and he also took responsibility for a yeshiva that was named after Rabbi Graubert, or Yeshiva Smaharil Graubert, which is affiliated with Eitz Chaim Network, um, that Rabbi Yaakov became essentially the Rosh Hashiva of this high school, uh, um, as it were, um, at the time. In fact, the community even left the gartel on, on Rabbi Yaakov's stender, which they expected him to wear, which he did when he was with his uh, community. They also expected him to put on Rabbeinu Tam Tfilin. And he said, no, 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 that's pushing it too far. And uh, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky's grandson related to me that uh, what happened was, um, Rabbi Mordechai Kamenetsky, he, uh, he said that, um, that, that they said, what do you mean? The Chavetz Chaim, who is not Hasidic, he put on Rabbeinu Tam Tefillin. Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky said, yeah, of course, because he did it when he was 90 years old. You know, I'm not 90 years old. And in fact, many, many years later, when Rabbi Yaakov uh, reached the age of 90, he put on Rabbeinu Tam Tefillin because he felt that perhaps what he had said so many years before constituted some sort of neder or a promise that he would, and because he felt obligated by his his speech, then he 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 donned uh, Rabbeinu Tanzfilin after the age of ninety. Interesting uh, stringency that uh, Rabbi Yaakov took upon himself because of what he had said so many years prior. Um, so. Interesting, there's several rabbis in Toronto during the war, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, and also another prominent rabbi who I'm going to get to in a minute, Rabbi Price, who's a very influential rabbi I'm going to get to soon, or I guess not soon, maybe in part two we'll speak about the great Rabbi Price. And uh, But both of them, they're very involved in rescuing German-Jewish refugees uh, who were stuck in Canada and turned, actually, by the government. Um, they refused entry into the United States, and others were actually interned by the British as enemy aliens. Ironically, that German Jews would be considered enemy aliens during World War II. So among those who stayed by Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky's house was uh, Zev Lev, Willie Lev at the time, later of Machon Lev in Yerushalayim, he was a Ben Bias. He was a fa- resident of Rabbi Yaakov's family, Peretz Pose and others. Um, 
So uh, Ryakov, his influence in Toronto was uh, uh, felt for many years afterward, afterwards. Um, I related on the Ryakov uh, Kamenetsky episode, which I did a, a year or two ago, um, that um, that the, there was a a story about Shabbos observance. Someone spread a rumor in Toronto at one point that Mashiach is coming, and they encouraged all the shopkeepers in Kensington Market to close all their stores because you know if Mashiach comes, he's not going to rescue anyone, any Jew who keeps his store open on Shabbos. And since he's coming next week, you better close your stores for Shabbos. And Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky went ahead and said to them, uh, you know, Mashiach's not coming next week, you can open, you know, keep it, keep it, keep it as regular. I don't know if he told them to open their stores, but, you know, keep it regular, uh, as, as you always do. And so, you know, he was asked, uh, how can you tell the people to, to do that? How can you, I mean, you're telling them essentially to open their stores on Shabbos and that you're dismissing the fact that Mashiach might come. And he says, listen, between me and you, who says Mashiach is coming next week? And the chances are is that he won't come next week. And here, the last thing that they have is the belief in Mashiach. And you're going to take that away from them. That what's going to happen if Mashiach doesn't arrive? They're going to go back to keeping their stores open on Shabbos. And they won't believe in the arrival of the Messiah anymore. So what did we gain? But if we go back to before Rabbi Yaakov's time, I mentioned earlier Rabbi Yaakov Gordon, um, a fascinating uh, uh, rabbi, he passed away in 1934. He was involved in the Simcoe Street Talmud Torah. He was born in 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 in, uh, in Lithuania in 1877. He studied in Valozhin, in Minsk, in even Kovna. Could, possibly that he even had smicha from a bicycle Khan inspector. Um, and he immigrated to the United States in 1904. And a year later, he comes to Toronto and he becomes the head of the Lithuanian and Russian faction of the community. Several congregations together, but the main base was a shul called Goel Tzedek. And he was also big in the Kashrus, like I mentioned, together with Rabbi Weinrib. He actually published a book of his sermons, which he said to his community, which are a very interesting window into Jewish life uh, in pre-war uh, Jewish Toronto. He supported Zionism, as did most uh, Toronto rabbis at the time. There was another rabbi there. Rabbi Samuel Sachs, who was a nephew of the altar of Slabatka, who studied in the Radin Yeshiva, ironically. Um, he attended Rabbi Nitzchakhan and Columbia University and eventually became a, a rabbi in uh, Toronto. So we are going to get to this uh, very influential rabbi. Maybe we'll end off with him in this part one of Avram Aaron Price. Amazing influence that he had. One of the most influential rabbinical leaders that Toronto ever had. Real Polish rabbi, leader, big impact in the long-term growth of the community. There's really so much to say about him, uh, a lot. Maybe we'll even get to an episode about him one day. I'm only going to touch on it here. He studied by the Sachachava Rebbe, uh, came... He even saw the Avnei Nezer when he was a child. Um, he, he met the Chalkas when he was in Sachachav. He was later close with the other Sachachav Rebbes, and he knew basically everyone. He knew all the great Polish Rebbes and the great Polish rabbis. He was at the center of Polish rabbinical life. He moves to Berlin after World War One, 1923. And he's, he's born in 1900, so he was 23 years old. He worked part-time as a banker in Berlin, and then he studied Torah the rest of the day on his own. When the Nazis rose to power, he escaped to France, and from Paris he made it to Toronto in the mid-1930s, but while he was in Berlin, he was greatly influenced there, became his primary rebbe, Reb Chaim Heller, um, who had this elite group around him in, in, of young Talmudic scholars and, and uh, 
educated Talmudic scholars while he was in Berlin. Rabbi Price met Rav Salvechik. He even met Chaim Nachman Bialik when he was in Berlin. Anyone who came to to uh, from Eastern Europe to Berlin, he he knew them. He helped a lot of the Polish rabbis who came to Berlin for for medical care, for fundraising, for other things. The Lubavitch Rebbe, um, the Friedrich Rebbe, the Rameir Shapiro, Menachem Zemba, um, and uh, and he he leaves Berlin and he comes to France with just the shirt on his back. He becomes a pauper, even though he had been a wealthy banker beforehand. And then he, the Hevra Shas in Toronto brings him to be the rabbi. And he was the Rosh Yeshiva in the Teres Chaim Yeshiva, one of the earliest yeshivas in in, uh, in Canada, and even in, in, in the North America at the time. Uh, Teres Chaim was basically the first rabbinical school in Toronto. He bestowed smicha on the graduates. Uh, granted, excuse me, bestowed. He granted smicha to the gra- many of the graduates, producing rabbis and lay leaders for generations. Uh, he was the rabbi of the Hevra Shas, and he essentially was the chief rabbi of Toronto, as well as the Rosh Hashim of Teres Chaim, and an influential rabbi in Toronto Jewish life for the next six decades, 60 years. He was very close from his Poland days with the Ger Rebbe, uh, and then later with the Rebbe's sons. He was close with everyone in Ger. Um, so he, he knew anyone and everyone from, from Polish uh, Jewish life. During the war years, he expended, like I said earlier, great efforts in rescuing German Jewish students interned by the British, over 50 such boys, and then another 50 plus students that he rescued from Prague. You have German students, then you have Czech students. They came under his wing in the yeshiva in Teres Chaim, and many of them became uh, the rabbinical and lay leaders in Toronto and beyond in the next generation. So he was involved in the next generation. Again, after what we discussed with Rabbi Weiner, Rabbi Gordon, Rabbi Grobert, so he's the decades after in the Kashrus and further developing the Toronto Kashrus scene, and he remained at the helm of, of Teres Chaim well into his 80s. Um, he had a vast library of over 2,000 volumes in 1950, which was allegedly at the time the largest on the continent. And this represented less than half of what he originally owned. He was a big uh, book collector, and the rest was lost and destroyed by the Nazis. But these included what he had. It was uh, rare and ancient uh, Sfarim. Um, wrote many acclaimed works on Torah topics covering the entire gamut of rabbinic literature. And he was awarded the Pras Harav Kuk, the Rav Kuk Prize for a Torah uh, a work that he authored. He was the first one to win that prize outside of the state of Israel. And he requested that the prize money be distributed among poor Torah scholars. He didn't uh, want to take anything for himself. He never took a salary as a rabbi. He was financially independent. He felt that a rabbi could be much more influential. That way, and he supported many of the Toronto institutions with his own money. He also had a phenomenal sense of humor, broad perspective, a brilliant man. And the very touching story that I want to end off with about him and part one is that in his later years, he was disturbed that his memory wasn't as good as it used to be. And a student of his related that Rabbi Price was struggling to recall a source, a Torah source. And this student told him, I remember you told me this. You told me this source. And you proposed a novel solution to the problem that's stated in this source, that you told me that you heard from Rabbi Chaim Heller back in Berlin. And he went on and to repeat the entire Talmudic discussion. So Rabbi Price said to him, I didn't remember it, but my student did, and he'll tell it to someone else, so it will persist. So I'll still be around through the Torah that I taught. And he passed away at the age of 94 in 1994. So we'll end part one with uh, that, and we'll continue on in part two uh, with uh, some of the other rabbinical leaders, and we'll move on uh, throughout the 20th century Toronto Jewish history. So this is Yehudi Geber, 
Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, sources, sponsorships, trips, lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.